So if you've been with us during our worship time, I hope you've enjoyed worshipping in your own homes. Thank you so much to those who continue to lead us in that way. Uh, and if you're just joining us for the talk, then welcome. Um, when I was a child, I had a teddy bear. I'm sure that's true for many of us, but uh, uh, many of us would have had a number of soft toys. But often there was one particular soft toy which would be the favourite I'm sure that's the case for many of you. Uh, certainly for me, there was a bear and I named him. His name was Ted. I was always very creative when it came, came to naming uh, toys. Uh, but for me, and I guess for others, uh, this one soft toy was a sort of source of comfort for me, I guess, in some sort of ways. If I had a difficult day, perhaps, or my parents were... Uh, telling me off for something that I'd done wrong or if I felt that uh, my, I'd been mistreated by friends or teachers or whoever, then I would turn to Ted, my bear, and hug him. Now deep down I knew very well that he was just simply a composition of various materials with a couple of buttons sewn on his eyes, but actually in some strange childlike way I gained a temporary level of comfort from hugging my bear. So there you go, childhood confessions. Now why would I mention this on Easter Sunday? Well, this is the day where we talk about Jesus uh, rising from the grave uh, and after being publicly crucified, three days later Jesus rises and demonstrates that he was who he said he was, he, he is who he said he is, the unique Son of God. And this is a story that gives us hope, a story that promises a better future, a story that talks about conquering death itself. And as we think about this incredible story, I want us to answer a question today. And this question has been asked by people over many, many years. When it comes to the Christian faith, when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ, the story of the resurrection, this account of Jesus rising from the dead, it's at the very centre of our Christian faith. In fact, the Bible says uh, that if um, Christ has not been raised, our faith, our Christian faith, is futile. And so the question that many people have asked over the years, over the centuries, I guess, is a very straightforward question. And that is simply this. Is it true? Is it really true? Jesus rising from the grave. Is this a foolish fantasy? Is this something to cling on to in, uh, during difficult times? A little bit like my favourite teddy bear when I was a child. We know it's not real, but it brings a source of comfort. Or is it an eternal reality, something that we can focus on that is true and accurate and brings true and living hope every day of our lives, even in difficult times like these? So that's the question we need to start with. These days we need hope, don't we? And Jesus Christ is claiming that he brings hope and that hope is centred around the fact that he claims that he conquered death by rising from the grave. Currently, we're all looking for hope, I believe. And so what about the hope of the resurrection? Surely if this hope is true, it gives us hope for now and hope for the future as well. But is Jesus rising from the grave a foolish fantasy or a living reality? There's a man called Simon Gathercole. He's an academic. He's from Cambridge University and he's an expert on the life of Jesus Christ. And he wrote 
an article in the Guardian newspaper, and part of that article says this. This is what Simon Gathercole writes. There is a abundant historical evidence beyond any reasonable doubt that Jesus Christ lived and died. The really interesting question is, did he die and live? I want to put my cards on the table from the outset. I want to say that I 100% believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, proving that he was the unique Son of God, God on earth, God in human form. I absolutely believe that. And so I celebrate Easter Sunday, not as some comforting fantasy, but as a reality that I wholeheartedly believe in. Now, many people over the years have asked me, why do I believe what I believe? Some people have said, oh, you believe in Jesus the zombie, do you? The walking dead. And some people have said, ah, they've accused me of having an invisible friend or an imaginary friend. Uh, I don't care because I know what I believe. But some would say, well, how can you possibly be so sure? I want to encourage you today that Christianity is not for simple, naive people who sort of leave their brains at the door as they walk into a church building. Actually, the Christian faith is built upon strong historical evidence. And I believe there's strong evidence for the resurrection. Uh, Let's just look briefly at three reasons why Christians believe that the resurrection is actually a true historical event. And in order to do so, we're going to read one of the accounts of these events. Uh, There are four of them, four different historical records of Jesus rising from the dead. And I'm just going to pick one and I'm going to read it briefly now. So we have a flavour of what we're talking about when we think about the evidence for the resurrection. This particular account was written by a very intelligent man, a very intelligent historian who was also a doctor. We've become increasingly convinced that doctors are worth listening to these days. And so let's have a listen to this one. Uh, The man is called Luke. And so in Luke chapter 24, from the first verse, he writes this. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was in in Galilee with you, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. So, the whole Christian thing, the whole of our faith, depends upon this story and whether or not it's true. This was a vital factor for me. My desire was to discover whether this was really true. And if it was true, then we really do have something to put our faith in and to put our hope in. And my desire now is to bring hope to everyone who happens to be in their own homes today listening to this talk. Uh, But I want to bring hope not in a teddy bear type of way. 
True hope. True hope these days, even when we listen to the news, even when this virus and as this virus continues to take its toll. Hope linked with truth and rooted in historical accuracy. So let's look at the three main logical reasons why Christians believe that the resurrection is true. And we're just going to look at them very briefly, one by one. Firstly, the empty tomb. Secondly, the appearance of Jesus after he died. And thirdly, how lives were transformed as a result of this incredible event. So firstly, let's start with the empty tomb. These women were the first people to arrive at the tomb. Let's face it, they were not expecting Jesus to rise again. They were turning up with expensive spices, uh, which they were going to use to anoint the body. Now, no one would go and buy expensive spices if they thought there was going to be no body to anoint. Uh, they were also asking who's going to help them roll away the stone. So they clearly had no idea what they were about to encounter. So before we even get to the empty tomb, I would like us to think for a moment about the first people to see the empty tomb. These were women. And it's really important that we bear that in mind um, as we recognise the position of women in that particular ancient culture. At this point in history, in this particular context, women were marginalised. Their testimony wasn't even regarded as valid at that time. And as I've already said, this writer Luke, he's an intelligent historian. He would have fully understood the culture of his time and he would have, he would have understood very clearly the marginalisation of women at that particular time in history. And so if this writer was going to try and convince us that this was a true story, if he was making things up, but he was trying to persuade us of the fact that the tomb was empty, then he wouldn't have chosen women as primary witnesses. If you're trying to construct some sort of credible story to convince people of something, then you wouldn't have used women at that point in time as the first witnesses. To me, this is a demonstration of the credibility of the account. This writer mentions women being the first witnesses in spite of their witness not being valid at the time. Why would an historian do that? There is only one reason. It actually happened. He's not making it up to sound more credible or more authentic. Authentic. He's simply writing down what actually happened. And for me, that adds weight to the whole evidence for the empty tomb. But why would a tomb be empty? Surely the most logical explanation is that someone's just taken the body. But the first question we would need to ask if we think about that possibility is how? How would that happen? How could someone remove the body? The, body, the, the tomb was being guarded um, by uh, soldiers. It was sealed with the Roman Emperor's seal. Breaking the seal of the Emperor of Rome would mean the death penalty. So given the determination of the governing authorities to guard this tomb and protect this tomb, it seems extremely unlikely that anyone was able to remove the body from it. But let's imagine for a moment that they did, that it did actually happen. Let's imagine that somehow people have managed to creep around the guards. I guess they would have had to have fallen asleep for them to be able to do that. That they would have then removed the stone really quietly. That stone weighed something like one and a half to two tons. It would need about 20 men to remove it, but they'd have to do it really quietly. And against all the odds, they managed to achieve the how, how, how you get the body out of the tomb. But then there's another question that immediately comes. Even if they did that, the next question is, 
equally important, possibly even more important, who? Who did it? Who would take the body? The enemies of Jesus had no reason to take the body. They wanted to demonstrate that Jesus was not who he said he was, that he was not God in human form. And therefore they wanted him to stay in the grave. They had a very strong motivation to not remove the body. Now another option may have been grave robbers. But if grave robbers had stolen the body, there is a big question that we need to answer. And that question is, why would they leave behind the grave clothes? The most valuable items in the tomb. If I was a grave robber, and let me just be clear about this, this is not something I've ever really considered as a career. But if I was a grave robber, I can't imagine rushing into the tomb of a dead person, spending ages in that tomb, unwrapping the, the person from the grave clothes, and then scooting away with the body. Particularly since the grave clothes were the most valuable bit in there and the body was practically worthless. It doesn't really make any sense at all. The only other people who could have possibly taken the body of Jesus would have been Jesus' friends, Jesus' followers. But why would Jesus' followers steal his body? To fabricate a story, he has risen. And then spend the rest of their days living a lie? Not only did they spend the rest of their days living a lie, they would have died for a lie. If they knew that he actually hadn't been raised from the dead because they themselves took the body. That's, and we'll come back to that whole issue of Jesus' followers a little bit later on. But as we think about the fact that the tomb was empty, the reality is this, no one would have taken the body. Doesn't make any sense. There is only one explanation for the empty tomb. Now, however remarkable and even impossible it seems, it is the only credible explanation that Jesus actually rose from the grave. As we remove all the other possibilities, it is the only one that remains. And so that's the first reason why we as Christians, why Christians right across the world are convinced that the resurrection is true. The second reason relates to the fact that Jesus, after he'd been publicly executed, he appears to people alive and well. Now, just to be clear, this isn't like someone seeing Elvis in the supermarket. Uh, Jesus appeared to his closest friends, people who knew him really well. It wasn't just random sightings. He spent time with people, he ate food with them, he drank with them, he talked to them. Jesus appears to people 11 different times over a period of 40 days. At one point he appears to over 500 people at the same time. Now my brother-in-law is a barrister and defence barristers say that they find it pretty impossible to defend a crime if there are about, say, 30 witnesses to that crime. Once you have that many eyewitnesses saying that's what happened, it becomes indisputable. Generally, people plead guilty because the eyewitness evidence is just overwhelming. But when we talk about the resurrection appearances of Jesus, we're not talking about 30 eyewitnesses. We are talking about something exceeding 500. When I was thinking about what I was going to say today, I was thinking back to our carol service in our church back in December last year, where over 400 people gathered together. And of course, we're really looking forward to meeting again, meeting again together uh, once it's safe for us to do so. But I remember speaking on that carol service evening about the wonder of Christmas uh, with a congregation of about 400 people. And I was just pondering and creating in my own mind a scenario just to help illustrate how powerful 
eyewitness testimony actually is. I want you to imagine for a moment the day after our carol service, the Monday, and the police come knocking on my door and they say that they suspect me of being involved in a drunken brawl in the Shrewsbury Town Centre on Sunday evening around 5.30 or so. And they're saying to me, so Mr Hotchkiss, can you tell us of your whereabouts at 5.30 on Sunday evening? And I would say, yes, I can tell you where I was. I was at a carol service in a church. Oh, really, Mr Hotchkiss, you were at a church? I see. Uh, and could anyone verify that you were there? And I would say, yes, I believe there are people who could verify that I was there. Um, and so would you be able to provide the names of those people who could verify that you were there, Mr Hotchkiss? And I would say, yes, how many names would you like? And they would say, well, how many names have you got? And I would say, well, around 400. That's the power of eyewitness testimony. There were, there were over 500 people who were prepared to stand up and say that Jesus had been seen alive and well after being publicly executed. Overwhelming evidence for the resurrection. Finally, and perhaps most significantly, we look at the fact that people's lives were utterly transformed from the point that they saw the risen Jesus. Jesus' followers beforehand, they were fearful, they were anxious, they were despondent, they were hiding away uh, in, a, in various rooms, just shutting themselves away. And yet when Jesus appeared to them, they were completely transformed. They were prepared to live and die for the truth of the fact that Jesus had demonstrated he was God on earth by rising from the grave. Now, one of the darkest times in the history of America was uh, relating to something called the Watergate affair. It was a dark time in America's political history. Those of you who know history well will be aware of the scandal that surrounded the Watergate Hotel in Washington, where the United States President Richard Nixon was found guilty of sanctioning the stealing of information and abusing his presidential power in order that he could stay in office. And uh, there were various people involved in that whole scandal. And one of them was a man called Chuck Colson. He was the hatchet man to President Nixon and uh, during that Watergate affair, and he went to jail for his part in it. And whilst in jail, he became convinced by the truth of who Jesus Christ was, and he actually became a Christian. And he went on to become the pioneer of the prison fellowship, and his life was completely and utterly transformed by Jesus Christ. And this is what Chuck Colson had to say about the resurrection, and I quote him. He says this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus rise from the dead, then they proclaimed the truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The resurrection changes lives. The history of the church is that millions of people have encountered the risen Jesus throughout the ages. And I can personally tell you that over and over again I've seen lives utterly and completely transformed by people coming to a living faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ. 
And so these are the three reasons why I and Christians right across the globe are convinced of the credibility of the story of the resurrection. The empty tomb, the appearances of Jesus and lives completely transformed. I want us to see this clearly. You see, 2020 vision is about having the excellent ability to be able to see really, really well. Now, as you can see by these things on my face, I do not have 2020 vision. But this Easter, I want us to open our spiritual eyes. Easter 2020, I want us to see things clearly. For all of us, there is currently an overwhelming sense of uncertainty. Things don't look clear right now. Uh, probably we've got questions without answers. Maybe about the deeper things of life. Maybe about what things really matter. Times like these, we start to think about what really matters. There's a Christian tent maker whose name was Paul and he was writing in a letter to a church uh, in a Greek city called Corinth. And this is what he wrote. He said, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the bit that actually matters. This is the bit of first importance. Jesus Christ truly rose from the grave. He conquered death. With this in mind, I want to offer us real hope at this time. The first thing to say is this, that Jesus, Jesus' resurrection authenticates his crucifixion. The Romans killed literally thousands of people in this barbarous way. But the fact that Jesus rose from the, the grave means that his death is set apart from all other people. You see, none of us are perfect. We all do and say and think things that are wrong. So I can't claim that I can die for your sins. I have my own sins to deal with, my own sins to worry about. And so we're all in the same boat. But at the same time, we all believe in justice. We all believe that justice should be done. We, deep down, we believe that people, if they do things wrong, they should pay for the things that they do. And actually, God is perfect. Heaven's a perfect place. We're far from perfect. And God's justice, therefore, needs to be done. And therefore, you and I, we need to pay the price for the things that we get wrong, say wrong, do wrong, think wrong, the, our sin. But what if someone has offered to do that for us? What if someone offered to pay the price, to take the punishment so that you and I can be reconciled to God? Who would be in a position to actually do that? Well, actually only someone who is perfect, who haven't got their own sin to worry about. Only God himself could actually stand in our place and be our substitute. And that's what Jesus did. By dying on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin. And as we put our faith in him, coming to him in humility, in repentance, we are welcomed into the family of God. And that's not only an eternal promise, that not only guarantees our eternal place in heaven, it begins in this life, it begins in the here and now. It's hope for now as well as hope for the future. Hope that comes from being reconciled with God because of his son's death on the cross. And this death on the cross, I believe, is authenticated by the fact that Jesus demonstrated he was God dying on the cross. He was God in human form by rising from the grave. That's the authentication of it. And as we read the words of this writer Luke, we find that the women are told that Jesus had already said he would rise from the grave. 
after three days. You see, Jesus did what he said. Imagine that you have an operation and beforehand you meet the surgeon and she says to you, I'm your surgeon, I'll be performing the operation. And afterwards you come round from the anaesthetic and you find the operation has gone well and your medical condition has been successfully dealt with. And you think to yourself, yes, she said she was a surgeon. And I reckon she was telling the truth because she's done what she said she would do. Now in the days we were able to go on aeroplanes, uh, as we land safely at our destination, I must admit I, I'm not a big fan of flying by the way, I'm uh, always a little bit scared, but as the plane touches down on the runway, we might think to ourselves, yes, I believe that that man, when he said he was a pilot, when he dressed up in his uniform, uh, he was actually telling the truth. It seems that he has delivered on what he promised. And it's the same with Jesus. He said very clearly that on the third day he will rise again. And that's exactly what he did. And so we can trust him. And finally, as we consider these challenging times, I want us to be encouraged. I want to encourage you that we can look at Easter and recognise that with Easter comes hope. Karl Marx said that religion was the opium for the people. And Jesus Christ said, I am the resurrection and the life. I heard a preacher say recently, it's not about opium, it's about hope in him. Hope in Jesus. Where is your hope this Easter? I believe hope is to the soul what oxygen is to the lungs. Hope is essential for life. And it, at this sort of time, it, it feels like we all need some level of renewed hope, don't we? In the midst of this time of great challenge and uncertainty and anxiety, I want to ask everyone, where is your hope? Can I say to you with overwhelming confidence, Easter brings hope. The resurrection is at the centre of this hope. The resurrection is not just an event, it's an identity. It's not just an event, it's a person. Because Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Hope means that our failures don't finish us and our successes don't seduce us. Hope means our anxiety doesn't define us or control us. Hope could be defined as knowing something greater lies ahead. Knowing that something greater lies ahead. And as we trust Jesus, as we put our faith in him, we have hope for now. As we become a Christian, we are given a wonderful promise. And that promise is that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in us. The resurrection, life, hope and power is accessible for anyone who puts their faith in Jesus. Now that doesn't mean everything's easy. It doesn't mean that we just drift along in some sort of super spiritual state. It isn't some sort of cosmic insurance policy guaranteeing us that we'll be free from all of the difficulties of life. But hope that we can receive at this Easter time can bring freedom. Freedom from fear. Remember I said about the, the fact that Jesus' closest friends were anxious and fearful and despondent. They were hiding themselves away. Uh, maybe you feel anxious and fearful and despondent as we, many of us are hiding ourselves away at this time whilst others are heroically caring for the sick. We're so, so grateful to the frontline and key workers at this time. 
But as we think about anxiety and as we think about fear, Easter hope speaks into those emotions and those feelings. And the resurrection power has the ability to transform us, to transform families, to transform uh, relationships, restore relationships, transform workplaces, schools, all sorts of things, and transform us, you and I. In spite of these challenging times, Jesus offers us life in all of its fullness. Today, in spite of all of the difficulties that we're facing, we can know the hope and the peace that comes from relying upon the resurrected Jesus Christ. And more than that, this future hope. Just before the lockdown, I had the immense privilege of conducting the funeral of a really good friend of mine who had been a Christian for a number of years and he was aware that his life was coming to an end and uh, uh, as he was, became aware of that he had an overwhelming peace about where he was going to go to the extent that he insisted he had a plaque put upon his coffin engraved with the words don't look for me I'm not here and that's what the women heard from the tomb he's not here he is risen and that's why my friend wanted those words on his coffin, because he had an eternal hope, a belief that the greatest was yet to come. And so if you're looking for hope now and hope for the future, then we all need to look at this Easter story. It's not some fairy tale to make us feel better. It is an accurate historical account of God breaking into the world in a way which brings renewed hope even in challenging times like these. Maybe you'd like to respond today. Maybe this Easter, Easter 2020, is your time to see more clearly, for spiritual eyes to open so that we can gaze upon the one who has actually conquered death. If so, I'd love you to make contact with a Christian that you know, maybe by phone or by FaceTime or whatever, and I'm sure they would love to talk to you. They would love to pray with you. In the meantime, I want to really encourage us, let's stay safe and God bless you all. Thank you so much for listening.